Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Happy Halloween. Welcome back to the cabin, my good friends. Thank you for your time today. Now, you didn't think I was going to let you get by without a Halloween special, did you? Now, of course not. We've all watched shows like Dateline or maybe Forensic Files. There's something about the depravity of mankind that draws us all to find out just how bad people can be to one another. Maybe it's just that we want to know what to look for in order to better protect ourselves from becoming a victim of such horror. Or maybe it's just some morbid curiosity that dwells within us that draws us to these shows time and time again as we watch each case seemingly become more depraved than the previous one. Then, just as you think you've seen it all, out of the clear blue sky comes, well, yet another story that knocks your hat in the creek. So, come on in, make yourself to home, and let me tell you the true tale that spans the mountains where I grew up. I suppose it'd be best to start at the beginning on this mess. So, Carolyn Bell Wardlow was born in 1845. Her sister, Mary Long Wardlow, was born in 1848, and a third sister, Virginia Oceana Wardlaw, was born in 1852. They were the daughters of John Baptist Wardlow, a Methodist preacher, and Martha Goodall Wardlow of Randolph County, Georgia. There's not really a lot to find out in her upbringing. Carolyn ended up marrying Colonel Robert Martin, who died suddenly, leaving her a widow. And Mary, well, she married Fletcher Sneed, who was 20 years older than she was. And he, too, died, leaving her a widow. 
and there's no record that Virginia was ever married. Now that in itself could have been the end of the story as people come and go through history every day without making any big ripples of great pain for others. But, uh, you know, we wouldn't be here if that was the case, would we? No, that's just the beginning of it all. Now, Carolyn's husband, well, he had been a colonel in the Confederate Army. He had been wounded in the war and retired to Kentucky, where he made his fortune in tobacco. He built a huge mansion and a farm near Louisville, where he met and married Carolyn. They had two children, a boy named Hugh and a girl named Osie. That's when Robert's house all of a sudden caught fire and burned completely to a smoldering pile of ashes on the ground. Robert was then forced to move to New York City in an attempt to recover some of the losses. And that's where in 1902, their son Hugh fell down two flights of stairs and died within a few days. It just so happened that Carolyn had taken out a $22,000 life insurance policy on the young boy just a few weeks earlier. The insurance company paid it in full, and that's worth about $573,000 in today's money. The family used that money to buy a bigger house in Manhattan, or just a Two weeks after arriving, Robert began to experience health issues, and then the neighbors heard a huge crash inside the house. They came to see if they could be of any help, and they found Robert lying in the middle of the floor, having just fallen from the upper balcony of the house. Carolyn and her daughter, Osie, were kneeling over him, crying. The only thing that they heard Carolyn say to Osie was that she told her never to speak of what happened in the house again. In 1892, Virginia Wardlow was hired as the president of Soul College in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. She was described as a charming, brilliant, fascinating educator that brought a light to Murfreesboro. Virginia was a charter graduate of the Wellesley College and expanded the curriculum to include music, drama, science, language, geology, European and constitutional history, along with vocations like fashion design, bookkeeping, and typewriting, and even added a law class. In 1903, Virginia and her sister Mary Sneed, who was now widowed, bought the school from the church-affiliated trustees. At first, the school flourished under their leadership, coming from a wealthy Southern families. The Ward Law and Sneed names were synonymous with distinction in education and uh, Two educators were described as brilliant and women of fine character and gentle demeanor. Soon thereafter, recently widowed sister, Carolyn, arrived at New York to take over management of the school's finances, or from New York to take over the school's finances. Her daughter, now 16-year-old Osie, was enrolled in the school as well there in Murfreesboro. Two of Mary's sons, John and Fletcher, also joined the faculty. The three sisters were distinct figures in the community as they began wearing all black. They were covered from head to toe in black dresses and veils. Well, why, I couldn't tell you, but they, they did it. After Carolyn joined the administration, unfortunate things started happening. They were known to call carriages late at night to visit a local cemetery and talk gathered around a particular grave. It was common knowledge that none of the carriage drivers wanted to go pick them up out of fear. Students were moved from room to room without reason. The sisters continually roamed the building singing and chanting, and they kept a mystery room in the college that nobody was allowed to go into. 
Nothing to see here, huh? On one occasion when Osi was ill, in fact so ill a doctor had to be called, but he wasn't allowed to enter the room where Osi was being kept. I guess you could say she was being held. Instead, Osi was wheeled out into the hall in a cot where the doctor could have a look at her. Osi went on to marry her first cousin, Fletcher. She was forced to do that by the sisters, who were now known as the Sisters in Black. Yeah, that word gets around, I guess. Nobody can tell you what suspicious is, but you sure as heck know it when you see it. It is said that their reason for doing so was to cover up a pregnancy that had occurred out of wedlock. The two lovebirds were separated and remarried twice after that. It wasn't long before rumors spread all over the school amongst the students, staff, and entire community of the sisters being in a cult. It was widely believed that Carolyn Martin possessed some kind of witching powers and the family was all caught up under her spell. The community had grave concerns about Osi because it seemed like she was in some sort of forced seclusion and it was said that she was suffering from some debilitating illness. Bills started piling up and going unpaid and because of the rumors, the enrollment plunged. In 1907, the sisters in black and their family were pretty much ran out of town on a rail, leaving the school a smoldering mess for the new owners to try to fix. In 1907, Virginia Wardlow arrived in Christiansburg, Virginia to run the Montgomery Female College, which was a well-respected boarding school for young women and girls, I suppose because she had done such a great job at Seoul. Her aunt, Mrs. O.S. Pollock, had run the school for many years, she was now growing older and wished to retire, so she asked Virginia, who had experience in teaching and academics, so to speak, I guess, to take it over. The college offered her students room and board and course studies in English, literature, ancient and modern history, natural science, mental and moral science, whatever that was, math, music, and ancient and modern languages. The school's catalog stated that the remarkable purity and healthfulness of the atmosphere render the location peculiarly eligible for a high seat of learning. Yeah, that's a mouthful, isn't it? By this time, Virginia Wardlow was no spring chicken herself. Don't get me wrong, she wasn't by any means a geezer yet, but the school took a good bit of work and effort to run properly, and Virginia realized that she needed some help to do it. That's when Virginia's sister Mary Sneed joined her in Christiansburg to help run the school. And all went along just swimmingly until their third sister, Carolyn Martin, joined them, taking over the college administrative duties, of course. The three sisters were once again distinct figures in the community, always covered from head to toe in black dresses and veils. What the locals didn't know was that Carolyn was what was known as in the mountain people here was is a bed bug. She was nuts. She started changing the school's curriculum. I suppose because it works so well in Seoul. She went right to shifting students around in different classes and padlocking doors for no reason and even concocted a scheme to turn the institution into both a school and a resort. One of the first things that she did was call up her nephew John, who had taught with the sisters back in Seoul. John's wife wanted him to have nothing to do with the job because of what had happened in Murfreesboro, and that was quite an embarrassment, and she didn't want to have to go through that again. Carolyn was persistent, though, and actually took a train to pick up John after finally convincing him to take the job. 
as a train neared Roanoke, Virginia on its way back, and it got to Roanoke Station, Virginia, or on its return trip, that is, John stepped out on the railing for some fresh air. That's when somebody pushed him off the train, which was traveling at full speed. John was injured but survived and went on to start teaching at school. I'd like to know what kind of insurance a man had on him, wouldn't you? Not long after, a surprising thing happened. Montgomery College went into financial decline. Shocker there, huh? On top of Carolyn's wackadoodle behavior and administrative incompetence, once all three sisters in black were back together working at the college, an unfortunate string of events took place again. I bet y'all saw that coming, didn't you? Among them, one of the students at the college became pregnant. If that news managed to get out, it wouldn't have been a black eye to the college's reputation, and that's the last thing you needed after what happened in Murfreesboro, so it was kept quiet. In fact, some reports that it was kept so quiet that the doors, some of the doors that were padlocked was the door of the student that was pregnant's dorm room. She was kept locked away from everybody and everything until she gave birth to the baby. Then they both mysteriously disappeared. I guess problem solved for the sisters. Students who acted about the girl were told that she had withdrawn from school due to her parents' inability to pay the tuition. Nice of them to say that, huh? Then soon after that, one evening, John was heading home after a day of teaching and was knocked in the head and thrown into the cistern where he woke up fighting for his life to keep from drowning. Luckily, another worker was nearby and heard the splashing and pulled him out just before he drowned. Not only was John responsible for teaching, he was to tend the garden. His job was to mow and tend the hedges and flower gardens and sur that surrounded the school. There was a bit of a problem with him doing that, though. He had to teach all day to start with, and John didn't have any idea what he was doing and didn't put a great deal of effort into it in the first place. Soon, the outside of the school looked like a war zone with dead grass where the was cut plumb to the dirt, weeds overtaking the flower beds, and all of the now-dying hedges looked like broccoli sprouts sticking up out of the ground. It was an absolute mess. It wasn't long before Virginia woke up in the middle of the night to loud screaming out in the school's yard. She looked out the window and saw a figure running around the yard on fire. It was John. She yelled out the window telling him to shut up before he wakes the whole place up and go back to bed, which he did once he put himself out. Probably walked in and went to bed in some kind of state of shock after all that. Because the next morning, John was found burned to death in his bed still reeking of kerosene. It was soon learned by police that Mr. Wardlow had short, died shortly after his mother and aunts had taken a sizable insurance policy out on him. But despite that, his death was still ruled a suicide. It might be also worth mentioning that Virginia wasn't the only one who was awakened by the screaming and running around the yard of a man on fire. Some of the students woke up as well. They stated that they saw Virginia in her window laughing at poor, the poor guy as he tried to put himself out. Though John's wife and the insurance company suspected foul play, the sisters didn't attract too much attention from authorities for a number of reasons. First, they came from a well-respected and deeply rooted family. They were daughters of the good Reverend John Baptist Wardlow. And secondly, before the 
She landed at Montgomery College. Virginia had served as president of Soul College, a Methodist women's school in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where pupils were supervised closely in all matters of moral and religious nature. At least that's what they thought at the time. Mary helped Virginia run Soul College, of course, as well as the two gained reputations as women of fine character and gentle demeanor. They missed the part about being ran out of town on the rail, I guess. Finally, Carolyn Martin, though once described as a peculiar in her actions, was, of course, the widow of Colonel Robert M. Martin, an entrepreneur and renowned Confederate war hero. Stick around, folks. They're just getting wound up. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. So what happens next? Well, nothing doing but complicate things. Carolyn and Osi went on a trip. It wasn't without a purpose, though. They went to get Mary's other son, Fletcher, to join him at the school. After all, he was Osi's ex-husband at the time, which they managed to change before they got back to Christiansburg. By the time they got back, Osi was again married to Fletcher. Everybody involved said that the two acted as if they were barely even knew each other, not as if they were a married couple. Then the sisters in black started the trips to the cemetery again. Carriage drivers, just like back in Mur- Murfreesboro, would literally argue about who would have to go pick them up and haul them to the cemetery. They'd watch as the sisters would surround the grave and do incantations while pointing toward the sky and marching around the grave, mumbling. Yeah, they began going to the dorms of the students in the middle of the night, too. The students reported that they would wake up from a deep sleep to find the sisters all around their bed chanting. They would then turn and silently walk out when asked what they were doing. Many of the students packed up and left after hearing strange screams in the school and baby cries coming from the well outside. In spite of the women's so-called fine upstanding reputations, the financial stress and All the weird happenings, Montgomery College finally closed down. They had run this school into the ground in less than two years and again left another school smoldering in a mess for somebody to clean up. They then headed north. On November 27, 1909, in East Orange, New Jersey, a 23-year-old woman was discovered dead, kneeling by her bathtub with her head stuck in about four inches of water. It initially appeared to be a suicide. Because there was a note pinned neatly to the clothing found adjacent to her body in which the last line read, Rejoice with me that death brings me a blessed relief from pain and suffering greater than I can bear. The note was signed by O.C. Sneed. The young woman was indeed identified as O.C. Sneed, the daughter of Carolyn and Robert Martin, and niece of Virginia Wardlow and Mary Sneed. Now, she was also the daughter-in-law of Mary Sneed as she had married her cousin, Mary's son, Fletcher. <sighs> the apparent reason for the suicide was the death of her daughter. The note said, Last year my little daughter died. Uh, other near and dear ones have gone before, and I want to join them in heaven. It was initially thought to be pretty much an open and shut case to the police who investigated it. Everything seemed to point to suicide. That's when the national news media got hold of the story and they latched onto it like a pit bull on a T-bone. Initial newspaper reports of O.C.'s death 
appeared only days after her body was discovered, around December 3rd. By that time, foul play was starting to be suspected. I think the police probably suspected that to start with. They just kept it under their hats. The police had discovered that a large life insurance policy had been taken out on Osi. In fact, several of them. An investigation was started by the insurance companies involved in the weeks that followed her death. Wouldn't you know that yet another horror story involving the sisters in Blackwood rear its ugly head? And it all unfolded in the newspapers across the country, being that there was no radio or TV or any, any internet. The story of the bathtub mystery, as it became known, was especially well covered in Virginia publications. They were especially interested in the story due to the family's connection to the Commonwealth. On December 7, 1909, the Times-Dispatch headline read, Chain of Crimes May Be Unearthed, Insurance Policies Heaped on Members of the Wardlaw Family. What followed was an article speculating on possible past crimes and a diabolical scheme of three sisters who were in dire need of a windfall. The insurance companies were, who smelled a big, fat, stinking rat went public. A mass of evidence which showed that the death of Miss Osi Sneed came at the very moment when the Wardlow family was about to be overwhelmed with the pyramid of policies that had been heaped on the various family members. It was also pointed out that the body of young Miss Sneed was found dead in a bathtub in a lonely New Jersey home on the very day that ended the Wardlaw family's two-week lease of the house. Not only was the insurance on the poor woman about to lapse because of a staggering load of loans obtained to pay the premiums, but the family was found involved in a chain of insurance on three brothers, cousins of a dead woman, and all of whom had died and disappeared maybe suddenly. One of the, on the life of the bathtub victim, there was discovered to be eight or ten policies in the amount of $32,000. Maximum loans have been made on all of them. <laughs> Fancy that. Two furthermore were threatening to lapse on account of failure to pay the premiums. And at the very time that the insurance companies were threatening to wipe out insurance or for failure of payment on premiums, the family was practically starving to death on top of it. Then the next day, on December 8, 1909, the Times-Dispatch reported that just a day before the young woman's death, Virginia Wardlow paid the premiums on the three $5,000 life insurance policies on Osi's name. Then Virginia went straight to the drugstore and attempted to buy chloroform. And they also reported that an investigation by reporters revealed that Osi lived in constant fear of her mother and aunts. Over the next year and a half, newspapers continued to report uh, on young Osi's strange death as more details came to light. Various doctors and lawyers who had visited the home in the years prior to her death tried to help her. Her aunts and mothers had had physicians to come to the home to examine Osi to prove how sickly she was, but the examinations revealed that she was simply being starved to death. One doctor tried to smuggle food to her through a window. Another her doctor spoke to a lawyer about how he might help get her away from the sisters in black but was told that there was no legal grounds for it because the young woman was of legal age 
Anytime a doctor visited the house, the three sisters would surround the bed where Osi was laying like buzzards waiting on something to die. Then just about the time that the doctor would finish, they would throw him out of the house. It was assumed that they would do this as not to have to pay his fee. The newspapers just kept digging and found that Osi's mother and aunts had conspired to slowly extinguish the life of their own daughter and niece. They had taken their, her infants away, held her captive, kept her in a morphine-induced stupor, and starved her, which was ultimately the main factors that led to her death. An article written by Ada Patterson on December 7, 1909 in the Times-Dispatch called it Money Meanness. It's a horrible modern horror story, she wrote, more dreadful than the most gruesome of tales, whatever the immediate manner of the girl's death at the root of it all was money meanness. The sisters were finally arrested. Virginia and Mary went along peacefully, but Carolyn, well, she made a break for it. It took them two weeks to run her down, and yes, they had to drag her in, kicking and screaming all the way. In the aftermath of that event, newspapers again pounced on it with the gusto of a hound dog and reported on the fate of the sisters in black. Virginia Wardlow's health gradually worsened while in custody. It was almost like she had just decided to die and nobody could figure out why. That wasn't until she finally died on August 11, 1910, while still awaiting trial. After her death, it was discovered that she had been hiding food in her cell. Ironically, before she could be tried, Virginia had herself died the same way that she had killed her niece. The crazy old woman had starved herself to death. And then there was a headline. Death was due to the opinion of the physician to starvation. The August 1910 Stanton Spectator and Vindicator explained the fate of the aged woman in this respect paralleled that of her alleged victim. Months after Virginia Wardlaw's death, the Times-Dispatch closely followed the trial of Osa's mother, Carolyn Martin. According to reports, she was an uncooperative defendant and repeatedly caused chaos in the courtroom. Now, who saw that coming? The examination of Miss Martin, the mother of Osa Sneed, the orange, East Orange bathtub victim as her, to her sanity, has been ripe with incident. It was found that she was indeed fit to stand trial, which was followed by her obligatory dying duck fit. Then on January 24, 1911, the trial was over and there was a verdict at which time Miss Carolyn B. Martin caused another sensation by fighting, screaming, and finally collapsing in the courtroom and playing dead. This after Judge Ten Ike sentenced her to serve seven years in state's prison for manslaughter. Why manslaughter, you ask? Well, Carolyn claimed that she accidentally killed her daughter with a lethal dose of morphine. Then, while in a panic, Carolyn stripped her naked, dragged her to the bathroom, plunged her face in the water, and forged a suicide note. How'd they know that? Well, there were six other rough drafts of the note found lying on the kitchen table on the day of the murder. But based on the evidence and the suspicious death that seemed to follow Carolyn Martin, her husband and son and had both died suspiciously. It was no accident, but part of the deliberate plan to kill Osi in my book. Then on June 13, 1913, the New York Evening World reported that after only a few months in prison, Carolyn Martin was moved to a lunatic asylum. At 67, she died of heart disease at the asylum. Mary Sneed's fate is more mysterious than her sister's. 
she was cleared of all charges and due to a technicality, that is. After all, you can't be an accessory to manslaughter. She moved to Colorado and was never heard from again. Fletcher Sneed, O.C.'s husband, who had disappeared months before her death and was suspected of being yet another death perpetrated by the sisters in black, was later discovered working in Canada where he had fled and changed his name to escape his mother and aunts. I guess they let him get away. To this day, people who visit the old Christiansburg Middle School, which stands on the site, claim to have an uneasy feeling. They sometimes hear screaming or a cry of a baby. Some have even seen apparitions walking around the grounds. I've heard that there will likely be an excavation of the grounds of the site where the school stood. They will be looking for human bones, among other things, and that may be hidden there. Whether it happens or not, I guess will be determined soon, but I, for one, will be watching that one closely. I think that we just touched the tip of what these sisters did. Most of the time, when serial killers turn on their own families, it's because they've ran out of their own preferred victims and are no longer able to run them down or fight them like they once could. So they pounce on their unsuspecting family members as easy prey. Well, I hope you enjoyed our Halloween special. If you did, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please. Please go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to do so, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to full-blown Appalachian Hillbilly. There's exclusive content there, as well as early ad-free releases of coming-up episodes. Or you can go to Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to get into. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I'll see you then. Happy Halloween.